Uh, here we go. Good morning. We are in First John chapter 3, and we're on part 5 of our series, Fellowship Divine, God's Blueprint for Otherworldly, Otherworldly Joy. Make sure I pronounce that right. And uh, the title for this morning's message is The Fellowship's Hope of Holiness. So we're going to talk about our hope in Christ and how that correlates with holiness in our Christian walk. Now, usually what I do is I just read through the whole passage and then we break it down. What I'm going to do this time is we're just going to go slow and digest verse by verse by verse. And if the Lord wills, we will finish and we'll see how it goes. All right. So we are in, again, 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go through hopefully to verse 10 today. So verse 1, behold. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Now, this verse comes right on the tail of the end of chapter 2, in verse 29, just going back a little bit to give some context. It says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So he talks about how being born of God implies we have a new nature from him. And as we act in accordance with that nature, we're going to live righteously because the righteous nature that we receive from Christ is going to lead us in that direction. Only when we are living according to the flesh and we're quenching the spirit, are we going to act different than what God has put into us when we were born again. So in verse number one here, he is reminding his readers something that they surely knew that they were already called sons of God. That's what they were. And this is really, really, really important to understand that our identity is sons of God or children of God now, as opposed to something that's held out there in the future for us to one day get and attain if we are persevering and if we're righteous, because that's how some people regard becoming a child of God. Uh, in fact, today, when I was on Facebook, I had posted something yesterday. It was a quote about uh, how we can't lose our salvation. Okay, It was a really good quote. Well, a friend on Facebook, I don't know him very well, but I met him in some group and I accepted his friend request. He's Catholic and he jumped on there and he wanted to engage in a debate. Okay. And you could tell as you're reading what he's writing, that his understanding of being saved, his understanding of grace is like a state that you can go in and go out of. Okay. So you're in grace when you are doing God's will, when you're not doing God's will, you're out of God's grace. So what they do Catholics and a lot of other Christian groups as well, but they take grace and works and they try to put them together. But the Bible in Romans clearly tells us that they are not the same. He says, if it is of works, it's not of grace. And if it's of grace, it's not of works because those two things cannot go together. Now, of course, grace leads us to works in the sense that we've been shown love. So what do we want to do? We want to return that love, but grace is truly free and it's not something that we receive as a reward for our work. And so that's how he understood salvation. So he thought of someone being saved and someone not being saved, as in, I'm obeying God, so I'm saved now. I'm living in a state of grace, is how they would refer it, and now I'm not in a state of grace if I'm living in unrepentant sin. Well, in that case, your salvation hinges on your works. So how do you know you're a child of God? Well, I suppose maybe they would consider a child of God as one who is in a state of grace. They might say that we don't really become child of God in the fullest sense of the term until we get to heaven. And then what's well, over then our struggle is over. 
And we're going to talk in a minute about how there is something that we have not received yet that one day we will receive. So this process of salvation has begun in us and it hasn't quite been completed, but it's already been completed in terms of our spirit. So the innermost being, which will leave this body when we die, that has already been washed and made clean. So if I die right now, no matter what state I'm in, if I'm honoring the Lord in my life or as a disobedient child, I'm not honoring the Lord in my life. We are, yes, we're already adopted. Okay, so we're already regenerate. So if the body dies, the spirit, which is already clean and purified, goes to be with the Lord. So that's the point of this verse here. We are already called sons, and that's the manner of love that God hath bestowed upon us. I'm just curious what he, I mean, what would he think of the Pope then? What would who think of the Pope? That your friend that is Catholic. He would think the Pope's saving grace. I suppose that, yeah, I think, I think that, he, I think that he would probably say that the Pope is just like anyone else other than the Pope has a special calling commission from God. But I think that he would admit that based on the past, there has been papal corruption. He probably would admit that not all Popes were living in a state of grace. Uh, he would say that this is a person who like anybody else can sin, but you know, God, God enables them to lead the church. And so I, th I think that most Catholics today, and again, I, I don't want to be quoted on this, but I would say that most Catholics today probably do not hold the papal infallibility. There, there might be some, uh, but I doubt it. Uh, I, I know that if, uh, well, I already know that a lot of Catholics have had issues with the current Pope. So I don't think that those Catholics at all would affirm papal infallibility. That seems to be a thing of the past, uh, which I'm glad that they have left that behind. You know, that's great. That's progress. Um, even if there haven't been progress in other areas of their doctrine, at least they have that one fixed. <laughs> but um, this is something that really has a lot of practical ramifications because we see it in the church that if someone doesn't have assurance of their salvation, if they don't know, like, I'm a child of God now, like, would I let anything happen to my kids? Never. And I was telling Scotty the other day about this. I don't know how it got brought up, but I said, honey, if I was walking with you across the street and I was holding your hand, and you rebelled against me, tried to pull away from me. I mean, like traffic is, you know, whipping by and I'm trying to get you across the road. It's very dangerous, but you're rebelling against me. And I'm going to say, fine, take the consequences and let go and let my daughter get run over. No, I'm going to hold on to her even if she doesn't hold on to me. So that's what grace is. Grace is God holding on to us even when sometimes we don't hold on to him. Because are we always holding his hand and walking like an obedient child? Yes, daddy, I'll do what you want, daddy. We're not always like that. But he holds on to us still because he's our father. He's not our judge anymore. And that's so important. A lot of people, a lot of Christians, I think they're still in the judge phase of their perception of God. They haven't got past that. And if you don't get past that, what is that going to lead to? One of two things. And we see both of them. One is fear. And fear honestly is by itself less damaging to those around you. Uh, you're not going to benefit anybody when you're trapped in fear. What's going to happen is you're going to become really introspective to where you're not looking at other people. You're not thinking about, hey, there are people who I need to share the gospel with. You know, I'm safe, but these people aren't. So I need to go tell people you're not going to have that passion to win the lost over. Yes. And, and it can turn and it can turn into that. And so fear is something that I understand because when I was in high school, I had that. I had the fear and it really did immobilize me. I was so stuck in my head with the fear of I'm not really saved 
that I wasn't able to confidently share my faith with people. Um, I was on a, a very shaky foundation. It's hard to do something like that, to have those dialogues when you're on a shaky foundation yourself. Uh, so that's one thing that it can cause when you don't understand your, your sonship, your identity, your adoption. Another thing that can happen is the fear can lead to legalism. And this is, again, my experience. It happened to me. I went from fear to I'll cover up my fear with distraction. That distraction will take the form of serving God. I will serve God and I will give God my all, holding out hope that this means something to him. And this will bury my fears that I'm not accepted. Maybe I can, and I wouldn't have thought about it in these terms because I knew that salvation was not of works. But again, there's a lot of inconsistency in the Protestant mind when it comes to this subject. Yeah, like God will be mad at me if I'm not serving him. And, and maybe if I'm not serving him, what if I'm not really saved? So I need to make myself feel better about my assurance of salvation by doing work. So in, in time, what happened was, and this really did happen to me, in time, I jumped on the bandwagon with Lordship Salvation. And I would agree with John MacArthur at that time of my life in, in college uh, with him as far as Lordship Salvation goes, but I didn't hold to Calvinism. So I didn't hold to the predestination element but I did hold to the perseverance of the saints. Like you got to do the work. And I thought being saved by faith was being saved by a faith, which governs your life. So rather than having this object of faith being the sacrifice of Christ for me, he paid for my sin. He rose again. It was that plus all this other stuff. I thought faith has to encompass your whole life, daily obedience. And, and that did lead me to have an arrogance. I believe it did because I thought I'm doing this, I'm doing this. I've got right doctrine. I am submitting my life, but these people aren't. And so I was very quick to judge. But I also, even in those, those phases of my life where I would be quick to judge other people, I still buried underneath that had a very fragile faith. So on the exterior and in my actions, I may have come across as arrogant because that's exactly what I was. Buried underneath that was still the fear. And so I think that that's something that can very easily happen. One starts out as this vulnerable child, like, am I really saved? And in that state, you can get to that person, teach them sound doctrine, and they'll become a strong believer, and they'll skip that whole process of going through the arrogance and the pride of it and becoming self-righteous. But if it's not checked by sound doctrine, what are they going to do? They're going to go to works for their assurance because they don't understand the promise. They're going to go to the works and they're going to start judging other people. And that is what has happened that's also, it's a possibility, of course, Christy, but what happens in the evangelical church is you have these people who on the surface seem to be teaching grace, but they're not. And it's because they have no assurance. And the way that they make themselves feel better is by serving God in their mind, persevering. And if other people aren't persevering, then they call that into question. And, and so this... Yes, exactly. And so that legalism is something that you can find anywhere. But sadly, this is not something that it should stay outside the church in the world. The world has always been legalistic. Every religion is. I mean, every single one, people tend to self-righteousness. That's why they don't like the grace message. It's not something that just happens in the church. I think it's something we bring into the church because we have part of the world in us. We're no longer part of the world, but there's part of the world that's in us, and that's the flesh. And we bring that with us, and that's why Paul talked about mortifying it. He, he said that this, this idea of wanting to take credit for your salvation is not of God. It's rooted in your sin nature. And you have to put that to death because what it led to was toxic behavior. 
in the Galatian church. He says they were biting each other. And he says, take care that you don't devour one another. It's amazing. These people who were like, listen, we've got to keep the commandments. And we just talked with the kids earlier about the commandments, loving God and loving your neighbor. But these people had so much emphasis on commandments, ended up devouring one another in their hypocrisy, in their pride, in their judgment. And you're like, man, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? They're the evangelical churches. They'll get up there and they'll talk all about grace and, you know, Jesus saves. But if you're not really and fill in the blank and that ends up leading to people judging others. You're not keeping up with me. I'm keeping up with me. But even those people, again, buried underneath all that pride, there is that fragility, that fear. And they do their best not to think about it on a daily basis. And how do they distract themselves? Doing the works. I go to church. I go to a Bible study. I give money. Okay. I don't dress a certain way or I do dress a certain way. Whatever legalistic requirements they fabricate for themselves to do on a daily basis, that's what buries their fear. But that, again, that fear can immobilize us or it can end up hurting other people through the, the toxic behavior that it can generate. So we have to just skip all of that. By doing what John says here, consider the love that God has given you that we are already at present sons of God. In fact, look at verse two. It says, beloved, now we are the sons of God. That's emphatic in the Greek. Beloved, now we are the sons of God. It's not something we're waiting on. But at the very end of verse one, I don't want to skip this. And I'm about to tell you to fill in the blank here for your notes. Uh, For verse one, the second part says, therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. So, of course, this applies to the less palatable teachings of Scripture. Uh, homosexuality, abortion, those are obviously hot topics. They have been. They're even hotter now because of Roe v. Wade being overturned. There are lots of people saying, well, let's overturn the decision to legalize gay marriage, right? And I hope that they do. But. So, what happens is the church. If we're sticking to our guns on these things, obviously we're going to be hated by the world. But I think the grace message is hated too. The grace message is hated. Whenever a Christian says, okay, look, the consequences of sin are pretty severe. It's hell. Okay. Now, of course, people have taken hell and they've created imagery that doesn't exist in scripture, Dante's Inferno, whatever. Okay. But even though the Bible doesn't give us a ton of imagery and a ton of details, it's still enough to obviously and give us fear to put that in our hearts. So that way we'll turn to Christ, fall at the foot of the cross and say, save me. And we experience the amazing grace, which is absolutely free, immediate sonship, immediate forgiveness, salvation that can never be lost. And that balm is the greatest relief in the world to know that I will never have to fear that again, because as scary as the consequences are, the grace super overcomes over them. That's the, the Greek there that Paul uses when he talks about no matter how high the sin is, grace super overcomes that, super abounds. And so that's what we are in Christ. We're super overcomers. But uh, the world, all they see is the guilt. That's all they see. And they think, okay, yeah, sure, I'm not a perfect person, but that guilt is downplayed. And they downplay it how? By either saying I'm already a good person or I'm doing a good job. I'm making up for previous mistakes I, I made in the past. So they look at the grace message and all they see is the guilt, which comes through conviction. That's all that they see. So they're not just angry at us for abortion and, or for our view about abortion, for our view about homosexuality, among other things. They don't like our message because we say forgiveness is available. And you would think that's the most 
awesome message in the world. It's amazing grace. But they don't like it because grace implies guilt and they don't think that they're guilty to the extent that scripture says. They don't think that they deserve eternal consequences. So they're going to hate that. And what's ironic is that same hate of grace, it infiltrates the church. Now, it doesn't seem like it at first because, again, Christians know better. We got the Holy Spirit. So these Protestant churches, they don't go as far as the outside does. The restraining influence of the Holy Spirit makes it to where they have to be a little bit more creative about the way they mess around with Scripture and twist it to say, oh, we're all for grace, but you better be working. What? Did you see what you did there? You just contradicted yourself. So, again, this is a concept that applies to Christians easily falling into this deception. Not just the world, which is already blinded by the God of the world. So, number one for your notes is our hope has been spiritually realized already. Our hope has been spiritually realized already. So key word there is spiritual. We, we have been spiritually born again. So we know we're sons of God now. What is more fundamental to a human? What makes us a human? Our body or our spirit? Our spirit. If our spirit leaves our body and our body's left behind, is that a human anymore? Is that a person? No. So our body obviously is something God created us with. It's an extension of us. It's important to us. God's going to give us a new one one day. But, but the most fundamental part of us is our spirit. And it's already been taken care of. The foundation's already been laid. Now, let's move on to verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we're now the sons of God already, but there's something else that hasn't happened yet. We don't know exactly what we're going to appear to be like. Okay, I think this is talking about physical, tangible, something you can see. And when he appears, when Christ appears, seeing him will change us. So that's what it seems to be saying, that seeing Jesus at the rapture will cause an immediate transformation in every single believer that's present at that event. So when we look on his face, boom, that's when we are going to be like him, bodily speaking. Um, of course, this is more than just bodily. Seeing Jesus works transformation now. That's why Paul talks about this. Uh, I believe it's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He talks about how the, the Jews are blinded. They have the veil of Moses over their, their face, and they can't see properly until that veil is moved away, and there's liberty in Christ. There's liberty in the Spirit of the Lord. But when we see Jesus, when we take off the veil and we behold his face, okay, and we look at him through the Word of God in prayer, and how are we able to even see him? It's not physical. It's through the Holy Spirit. I know Jesus personally through the Holy Spirit as I study his word. And as he reveals himself to me and I, and I witness him and I behold him spiritually speaking, as I talk to him in prayer, as I develop that intimacy, I become more like him. And so right now we're already being transformed by sight, by the eye of faith. But one day our literal eye will see Jesus and will be literally changed at that point. So number two for your notes is our hope guarantees consummate joy. That's your vocab word for the week. Consummate means complete. It means finished. Totally done. So our hope guarantees consummate joy in the future. Now, another thing that before I move on to the, the next verse and point three, I think there is going to be a variable degree of similarity when it comes to our final state. So right now, are every believer equally beholding Jesus in the word, submitting their lives to him? Are they becoming transformed in that intimate relationship? No. All right. So there's a variable degree now, 
And I think that when we're changed, everyone essentially is going to be the same like Christ. Uh, and that will all have a glorified body. So we're all going to be freed from sin. There will be no one at the rapture, no matter how carnal they live up until the point of the rapture. When the rapture happens, no one after their change will have any sin in them. Zero. However, how we appear before the angels and before the father and before the son, when that judgment seat of Christ takes place, our reputation, so to speak, will have a variable degree of similarity. Okay. So we'll all be like Christ in that we have glorified bodies and we're forgiven of our sin and we'll be eternally with him in that manner. And I think that's what will probably make the judgment seat of Christ more uh, difficult to experience for a carnal believer because a carnal believer has the flesh and, and we can feed the flesh, right? And we can distract ourselves. We can try to take our eyes off God because looking at Jesus when we're sinning is painful, right? So we'll take our eyes off Jesus and the flesh gives us a way out, so to speak. But when we come before Jesus in our glorified body, we will have no sin at that point to retreat to because there's nothing in us at that point. It's all Jesus. So when we see the life that we lived apart from Jesus, that's going to cut us to the quick more than it would if we were in our flesh. Like if you feel cut to the quick now because of your sin and you're living in Christ and you're not quenching the Holy Spirit, imagine how much when you're completely free of the flesh, how much will you look at your sin and be like, man, what was I thinking? Thankfully, the Lord's going to say, my grace is sufficient. Okay. But obviously there will be different rewards and we're not going to go into that as much, but I did want to mention when we're changed physically speaking, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says the celestial bodies have different degrees of glory. So you got one's the sun, one's the moon, every star as we talk about, or as we will talk about on Wednesday when we have our lesson on astronomy, uh, every star is different. They're all unique. Now they can be generally grouped into classes. You know, you got red dwarfs, you know, you got the supernovas. Okay. You got all these different classes, but they all are unique, just as we are all unique. And Paul seems to slightly, it's very slight, but I think he slightly suggests in the text that just as there is a, a different degree of glory among all the different stars, when we receive our celestial body, there will be different degrees of glory among us. I'm going to be honest with y'all. Um, I don't think that all people, I don't think anybody, even the most faithful believer is going to shine as bright as Jesus. Do y'all believe that? I think he's going to shine brighter than all of us. Some people are going to, yeah, absolutely. Some are going to shine, I think, more closely to that radiance than, than I am. Okay. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do my best to live up to that perfection, but I horribly fall short. But I think that the Christians who don't care, they're not striving for that, okay? For whatever reason, there are lots of reasons why Christians backslide, okay? We're not going to go into that, but, <laughs> but, well, but when we see Jesus, I think when we all stand around him, I think there are going to be some that are like bright. You're going to be like, man, those people right there. You don't even have to talk to him. It's not like you're going to walk up to him and be like, okay, so what's your reputation? Well, he told me I get this and this. You're not even going to have to ask. You're going to look at him and you're like, that one right there. He's shining bright. Okay. I think that, and of course, yeah, tell me your story. Now it's not going to be like anybody that's not shining as bright. They're not going to have anything wrong with them. There's no sin in them, right? They're still perfect. Okay. But they just don't possess the beauty that these other people have. They don't have the jewels in the crown of these other people. And so that's another thing to consider as we are living our life for Christ. And as we're beholding him, that will translate, I believe physically and visibly to what's going to happen one day when we get to heaven. 
So what I am now, like if I am living for the Lord right now and, and I'm holding on to what I have gained as I persevere in sanctification, if I was to go right now and I, and I have a, a hold on that reward because John and second John says, don't lose that reward. Okay. Everything you work for. I think that I'm going to shine brighter than I would than if I let it go. And I went up into the rapture. And then the day before the rapture, I say, listen, I don't believe in this anymore. Just like there are some evangelicals who have done that, have they not? And they say, I don't believe this anymore. If they did that and the rapture happened, they, they lost what they wrought. Now, God's grace is sufficient. They're covered. They're saved. They're saved. They're saved. But they didn't persevere to the end. So persevering to the end means something. It really does. And that's why Paul talks about it all the time. But persevering to the end does not correlate to our salvation. It correlates to our, our works, our eternal reputation, so to speak. And I want to be able to cast those at Jesus's feet. Imagine if there's a seat. Like we talked about this. We talked about the thrones, the 24 thrones and the rotation, you know, that some people believe, you know, some people will, you know, take turns sitting in those thrones. Well, do you want to be one of those people that isn't able to sit on one of those thrones? I don't think it's going to be like, oh, I want to sit on the throne. It's going to be fun. It's going to be like, I'm close there. I'm closer to the Holy of Holies. I get to take my crown and in a grand gesture say, it's all for Jesus. It's not about me. It's about giving something to him. And, and we can squander those opportunities, right? We're given opportunities all the time to worship God in a special way. If we squander those now, then we're going to squander them then. It's not that we won't be able to worship God. We will. But I think that there's a special gift that he gives to those who stay the course, so to speak. Now, let's move on to number uh, three, verse three. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And so your third point is our hope practically is beneficial in keeping us clean. Our hope is practically beneficial in keeping us clean. And I'll just state it this way because I think I wrote it down pretty well. As we dwell on him, on what we are in him, of what we will be through him, and what we can be for him, we will transform our thinking and by extension, our conduct. It's that simple. If we are thinking about we're saved now, one day we're going to be glorified through him at the rapture. And imagine what radiance we can shine forth for his glory if we are sanctified and we're close to him now. And we're laying hold to those rewards that he offers to us. If we're doing that, it's going to change our thinking. It just changes what matters to you. I mean, we went to the fair yesterday and I'm seeing all these people and the thought goes through my mind. Do these people know him? Do they know him? I see this little uh, a guy over here. He's always there at the fair every single time. His little house, red house. And they do storytelling there. Storytelling for the kids. It's free. So the kids go in, they get a free you know, story and there's no words. The gospel spoken without words and they do something. I don't know if it's a puppet show or whatever, but they do something to share the gospel. And then afterwards he explains it. And, and of course, no one ever goes in that thing. And, and I, and I see that guy sitting there, you know, hopeful, hopeful that he's there every single year. And he's hopeful that some kid's going to go up in there and they're going to hear the gospel. Maybe some parent will say, my kid needs to hear. Now our kids, they know. And so we didn't go this time, but I just think that it's, it's sad that that guy was sitting there and didn't really have anything to do. And I look around at all these people at the fair and, and listen, I, it's not my job to judge, okay? And, and I don't think ill of these people, but it, it does reflect upon society when these people are walking around and they're practically undressed. And I'm thinking, and, and, and you see moms with their daughters 
and their moms are not setting an example to their daughters of how they should present themselves. And same thing with the guys. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm just thinking, do these people know him? And do these people realize that all this stuff, it's fun. Yeah, sure. If there's fun, I'm here with my kids. We're having a good time, but none of this is worth anything. If you don't have Jesus. And, and I mean, bring it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so sad when you see that because, listen, I'm here with my kids because I love my kids. They're a gift from God. That's how I see them. And I want to enjoy my gifts. So we're gonna, I'm going to go enjoy my gifts from God and we're going to go to the fair. But do they look at it the same way? You know, everything we do, all the fun we have with our family, we're enjoying a gift from God. We're basking in the light of his goodness. And so when you're on, in the word all the time and you're fellowshipping as we're doing right now, like we are getting baptized in Jesus thinking right now. And every time we meet, we do that. Every time we sit down and we pray and we read the Bible, we do that. It, it cannot help but change the way we live our life. It can't. And so that's why there's so much in the Bible about transforming our mind. And one of the things we need to know and we need to never forget is that as we're purifying ourselves, sanctification-wise, practically speaking, what we're shooting for is not standing before Jesus one day and him saying, by the way, you are a child. Congratulations. That's not what we're shooting for. We should not think that judgment is that at all. Okay. When we stand before Jesus, we should be standing before him knowing, I already know that I'm a child. I already know it. The rapture happened. I wouldn't have been taken otherwise. Okay. That's not what's on trial. What's on trial is as a child of the father where our lives conformed to him. We were begotten by him. Did we look like him? Now, the fourth point. Oh, actually, we need to read verse four. Uh, Whosoever committed sin transgresses. Gosh, that's a hard one. Transgresses. Gosh. Transgresseth. Woo. King James is getting me today. Transgresseth also the law for sin is the transgression of the law. So that's a practical definition there for what sin is. It's breaking God's law, transgressing God's law. And we become pure from that. We purify ourselves practically when we keep our mind on him, when we dwell on him. Um, number four, before we look at the verses, uh, point four, our hope logically grounds us. Our hope logically grounds us through sacred and personal history. That's a little wordy, but I'm going to explain it. Our hope logically grounds us through sacred and personal history. And this is probably the, the biggest point here. And I'm going to essentially just read you what I wrote because I think as I was writing this down, I expressed it well, but let's read the verses first. God's word always comes first. Uh, verse eight. Sorry. Yeah, you're right. Verse five. Uh, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him is no sin. So manifested to take away our sins. This is recalling to us that Jesus came historically, not too long ago from their perspective, but longer from ours to take away our sins. The lamb of God cometh to take away the sins of the world. Verse 6, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now, when it says the one who sins hath not seen him, it's referring to when you are sinning, in the, in the moment that you sin, you cannot claim that you're seeing God. You can't claim that you're knowing God. You are blinded to the truth whenever you sin. That's what happens every time you sin. There is a part of you that's closed off to the light of God and you're walking in darkness. Now, never totally are we closed off to the light of God. We have the Holy Spirit abiding within us. 
in a permanent indwelling sense. But abiding in Jesus here is referring to being what you are in Christ, being that born again person. And whenever we deceive ourselves into thinking, hey, my sin is a better option (laughs) than obeying God, we can't say we're seeing God and we're knowing God. That refers to intimacy. Are you intimately um, aligned with God, walking hand in hand with God when you're sinning against him? Of course not. And so this isn't referring to someone who sins and then John saying, well, you never knew him at all. Never did. Because John says in chapter one, that if we say that we're without sin, we're a liar. He's saying me. He says, I know God. I walk with God. I was there. I saw him. He saved me. So John knows him. John saved. He said that his audience is. We've already looked at how he said, you're forgiven. You've overcome. You're born again. So when he says here that if you don't abide, you haven't seen, you haven't known, that's not saying whenever we sin, we should say, oh, well, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I never was. We should simply acknowledge that when I did that sin, I was blinded to God's truth. I valued my sin over God's truth, over God's will, and I was clearly in error when I did that. Consciously, willfully ignorant, but I was certainly in error. And so uh, let's look at verse number Verse number seven, thank you, Scott. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. This is the epic background to the practical stuff that he's trying to teach them. He's saying right now in the present, you should abide in Jesus. Now, let me give you the scope of this, the background scope here. From the very beginning, there's been an enemy called the devil. And from the very beginning, the devil's been in a struggle with God. And Jesus, God, who became a man, came to take away your sins. Historically, that happened at the cross. The devil's been sinning from the very beginning. From the very beginning, going back to the Garden of Eden, he's been trying to take from God the glory that's due him. He's been trying to keep you away from the goodness of God. Anything that you can lose, even as a believer, he tries to rob you of that. There are certain things that he cannot touch as we'll see in uh, 1 John 5, because it talks about the evil one cannot touch the born-again person. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. But whatever he can take from you, he will. He'll do his best to. So he's saying this is the epic here. And that, that history, whether it be personal, like when I got saved, when I was six years old and accepted Christ, or going further, because long before I started walking on that road, that road existed. Okay, truth is not something we create when we experience something, it's not like, oh, I had an experience and I know Christianity is true because of my experience. Christianity is based on objective fact. And long before I showed up and was born in 1990 or long before I got saved in 1996, Christianity was true. From the very beginning, God is truth. Truth is not something you can mold or manipulate. Truth is a person. He's sovereign. And so we have to go back to this. This is what we have to teach our kids. We, I mean, we have to let them <laughs> understand that these pictures that they color of Jesus and Abraham and Moses and all this, this is real history. And this is history that they practically have to intersect with. They have to decide where they're going to be in this story. They have to also understand that today in this current day, the world is not on the side of God. No. No, this story is a myth to the world. And so we really have to do our best as parents to baptize their thinking. And the Holy Spirit's in it with us, or rather we're in it with him. I mean, we're, he's walking alongside us, but he's the one, he's in control. At least that's what we're trying to do is he's the one piloting this plane and we're doing our best to bring our kids along. And so our hope logically grounds us. It tells us why we do what we do. You know, I think that's why people lose faith. They, they're on this road and they all of a sudden forget while they're on the road. 
what am I doing? Y'all ever forgot something? You're in the process of doing something. You're like, what was I doing? Why did I do? Why did I come in this room? That's what happens to these people. They're not grounded. Now, why? I don't think it happens overnight. I think it's something that slowly happens. Concessions are made. Maybe they're listening to the lies over here. They're letting uh, falsehood come into their home, coming into the books that they're reading. Okay, the TVs that or TV shows that they watch, YouTube channel. But as they let that in, it erodes that sacred foundation, that truth. Now, our experience, guys, I mean, that can be eroded easily, can it? I mean, I could say, well, my feelings that I had when I was six, like, you know, how sincere was I when I was six years old? How sincere was I when I got baptized when I was nine? Those are things that can easily be eroded, I think. But you know what? I'm so thankful that I based those experiences not on nothing. They're not floating. They're founded on truth. And I can go to the word of God and say, listen, Mike, whenever I got saved, no matter if it was six or nine, I don't care. All I know is there was a time in the past before now that I placed my faith in Jesus. And that's all that matters because this sacred foundation that it happened, that's all that matters. And so don't, if you're listening, don't worry about exactly when you got saved. Now it's nice to know when, okay. I'm not saying that's not important. I think personal history is important. I do believe that I was saved when I was six. I do believe I was baptized when I was nine. And when I got baptized at nine, I'm, I can remember the joy at wanting to be a disciple. And I think that was genuine, but there are times where you wonder like, when was I really saved? Was I really sincere? But I've got something a whole lot better than that to base my faith on. And it's the, the unshakable word of God, which has been tried and tested again and again. Uh, so I'm going to read this to you real quick. Okay. And then we're going to wrap it up because um, I am almost out of time. Am I missing part of my notes here? I might be. No, I'm not. I got it. Never mind. Sorry about that. False alarm. All right. We were saved when we apprehended the truth of the biblical record. This is when we started to walk on the narrow way, but the truth was already paved. The road was already paved before we arrived at it. It's not our road as if our experiences need only themselves to be meaningful. The absolute truth of scripture keeps the blessed path from wisping away like a dream after waking up. Long before we arrived on the scene of history, God was at work. Our destiny then is not of our own making, for truth is not a substance to be manipulated. Truth is a sovereign person, and we are his heirs with an unimaginable heritage. We have tasted of its goodness to a great extent already, yet so much more awaits us, and the devil will do what he can to rob us of what can be lost. So remember your heritage, savor its rich delights, and thereby oppose the works of the enemy. Remember your heritage. When I read the Bible, I don't see it as the Jews' heritage. I see it as my heritage. Got a special plan for the Jews? I'm not a Jew, <laughs> and that's okay. I don't need to be. But when I read the story of Abraham, I truly am connected to that man. Why? Because God spoke to him, spoke truth in his life, and he believed it. And God used him to bring that message to me. And God revealed himself just like he did to Abraham. He revealed himself to me and I believe too. So all of these people in the old Testament, even if I don't share their DNA, we share the same heavenly father. Okay. And the spirit runs a lot thicker than blood does. And we're adopted into the family. All right. Now verse number nine. This whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin for his seed remaineth in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So that clearly teaches that a born again person can't sin. Now you may say, wait a second, we sin all the time. Not when you're being the born again part of yourself. Now that may sound strange, but when you are acting in accordance with your new nature, 
you never, never, never sin. You can't because you have a perfect nature lying inside you. And anytime you do sin, it's because your flesh. Now, it's not something we can just blame our flesh. Oh, my flesh made me do it. No, you chose it, right? But if you were acting in accordance with your new nature, you would have chosen God every single time. And one day when the flesh is removed, when you only have one option, life, righteousness, God's glory, that's all you're going to choose. Now, some people say, well, does that mean we're not going to have free will in heaven? And my answer to that emphatically is, no, we're not going to have free will in heaven. And some people may be bothered by that. And I say, no, that's the whole point that God put us in the world the way he did. He allowed us to have a choice. Did, did you not? We made it, didn't we? Did we not freely, when we said yes to God, we said yes to everything that it entails. But who said yes? We did. Were we made to? No, we were given that free choice. And I said to God when I got saved, even if I didn't understand it all at the time, I was saying to God, God, come into me, change me, make me exactly as you want me to be. I want you to save me and wash me clean so I can be with you forever. And so when my professor one time asked me like, buddy, doesn't take that take away from our free will? I said, not if I freely choose for God to take it away. And, and that's exactly what he's taken away our sin. He's taken away again. Again, it's, you know, verbiage, uh, semantics. But the point that I'm trying to say is our option to sin will be removed in heaven. It's gone. And I thank God for that, right? Don't y'all? It's gone. But I'm freely giving God that. I've already said yes to God. And when he takes away that, I'm going to be so happy. And it's not that that gives me an excuse. Like right now, whenever I sin, God won't hold me account. No, he will. Okay, he's my father. He'll discipline me. But I know that one day things are going to be different. So number five, our hope is a manifestation of the new creation in us. Our hope is a manifestation of the new creation. When we hope in Christ, when we struggle against temptation, that's proof that we have inside us a new nature. And those new desires that we have to honor Christ, that's from that new nature. And the process that's begun cannot be undone. Nothing will erase the new creation. Y'all realize that? The new creation will never pass away, right? It promises us that. You are the new creation already. If you're saved, it's already begun in you. Last point, and then we're done. All right. In this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So we talk about how this, you know, gets practical where the rubber meets the road. Living righteously according to God's standard, keeping his commandments and loving one another. It starts with the family of God and then it extends out to all people. Loving our neighbor would be loving everybody because God is made of one blood, all human beings. And he came not just to take away our sins, but the sin of the whole world. And so the last point is our hope that we have in Christ battles with the world polluted remnant in us. We always talk about a remnant. And generally when we talk about a remnant, it's a good remnant, right? We think about that. You know, the remnant of Israel, the remnant in the last days. What about the remnant of the leaven, right? We don't talk about that as much, okay? And we should because we have it. Again, I put it this way, though we are no longer a part of the world, a part of the world's still in us and we battle with it until one day, God's going to give us the complete victory when he comes back. But in the meantime, the Lord gives us the strength to overcome that and to put our uh, flesh to death, spiritually speaking, uh, to mortify the, the members that uh, struggle against the new nature we have. And if we go along with the Holy Spirit as he counsels us and guides us, there'll be a great reward now and then. But uh, God bless y'all. If you listen to this, I pray that Something that God wanted to say to you came through and I hope you join us again sometime.